All right, thanks you guys for coming and thanks to all of you who might be watching. Um, we're excited to have um, our second graphic novel symposium happening today. Um, today is day two, so we've had gaming going on. There is a cosplay event after this event over in the U building and we have another panel immediately following this panel. So um, lots of fun stuff. We're super excited that Espresso Love has been supporting us, uh, our coffee bar, so please support them and go buy some coffee later on. And then I have um, a panel that I'm super excited about. Uh, the title for the panel is Generation Next, How to Keep Nerd Communities Growing. Um, the women up here are incredible artists, writers, activists, really talented in a wide variety of ways and are going to share with you um, some of their experiences building nerd communities, um, mentoring other people, helping them build nerd communities so we can go out and build our own. So um, I welcome them and I'll let them introduce themselves and um, we'll have questions at the end if you have anything that you'd like to ask them. Great, thank you. Hi, thanks everybody for being here today. I'm actually gonna go down the line and allow everyone to just kind of introduce themselves and give you a little bit of information. We've also got information on the uh, screen up there with ways you can get a hold of us on Twitter. Feel free to reach out. Hi, my name is Yatasha Womack. I'm author of the book Afrofuturism. I'm also author of a sci-fi book called Rayla 2212 and I'm shooting a film this fall called Bar Star City that's a sci-fi based. Hi everybody, I'm Carly Frank. I'm a higher ed administrator and a humanities instructor at a very tiny little college in Indiana. And when I've got some free time, I'm a painter and a sometime poet. Hi, uh, so as you can see up there, I'm kind of a do all the things and have a problem saying no to projects. Uh, my name is Mitchie Trota. I am the managing editor for Uncanny, a magazine of science fiction and fantasy. I'm also a board member for the Chicago Nerd Social Club, and I will blog about uh, geek culture issues. I particularly like to focus on issues of representation and diversity, although you will occasionally find food recipes on my blog as well, because I bake all the things um, at Geek Melange. And in my spare time, I will perform, uh, I'm the fire performer with Racks Geek. I work with Dawn, and I also uh, organize the Chicago Full Moon Jams because Mitchie doesn't do enough things. I'm another <laughs> person who's a little overcommitted. Um, I'm Don Santa Moon, and I am the founder and producer director of Rocks Geek, which is a geek belly dance and fire company that's based here in Chicago. Uh, we do have a bit of international presence. We made a little bit of a splash in the UK with a video of a Wookiee belly dancing to a four-part Klingon band with an original song in Shariwook. So you can look up this on YouTube. Uh, you'll find us pretty easily. So I'm a belly dancer and a fire spinner, and I'm also a UX designer and web developer. So that's the panel. Um, we're gonna kind of break, uh, open things up with uh, asking uh, the panelists, what are the barriers you have uh, noticed in many nerd communities? And how do we prevent growth and sustainability right now with the way things stand? Um, well, I think one of the things that we always, uh, like this is a, uh, a point that I'm always bringing up whenever we have discussions about, hey, we'd like to bring more people into work our convention, or I'm starting a group, I'm putting together an anthology. I would love to be able to get not uh, a wide variety of uh, people who want to be involved. And one of the metaphors that we tend to use is 
you can't just open a door to a community where certain people have been used to being thrown out and then just expect them to walk in happily now that you said, well, the door is open, why isn't anybody coming in anymore? You actually have to go out and do the work to invite people in to demonstrate that you are an inclusive community, that you are aware that just because we are geeks and nerds, we are not immune to any of the barriers that we face out in other spaces, whether we're talking about racism or misogyny or homophobia or not being as accommodating to people with disabilities, it's really important to make, to make those gestures and to make sure that we are demonstrating that you actually take, keep those things in mind. I think one of the more rewarding experiences I've had recently is uh, being one of the advisors for a brand new arts club that's just been founded at my college. And one of the barriers that we're seeing is the pre-existing clubs that have been there forever like the Creative Writing Club, is pushing back. They don't want the Arts Club to exist because they're afraid it's going to encroach on their territory. And they have this idea that, well, we were here first. And what if they come into our space and do what we're doing? Instead of, you know, and I, uh, what I think we need to see is, and this applies all over geekdom, is yeah, they're gonna come into our space and maybe do some of what we're doing, and that's okay. There's room for, more than one group of us, and there's room for more than one creative culture in the same place. I guess for me it's interesting because I, um, for a lot of my life I covered entertainment journalism and um, I was very much on the, the social scene and, and I thought I knew uh, about a lot of the communities that were out there because I had to do so much writing, particularly in the urban space. And I knew a lot of African-American people who were really, really into sci-fi. And they approached it, you know, from the standpoint of music, they approached it from the standpoint of, of uh, you know, being fans of certain shows, and, and there were people into the fiction, and, and just a range of things. But the term Afrofuturism itself, I didn't hear until a couple of years ago. And it was through the exploration of that that I saw there was a slightly different philosophy. But in saying that, once I started exploring Afrofuturism, and then I, I found the space for me to write a book like Rayla 2212, uh, I was introduced to the really the geek community through my exploration of how to possibly connect with audiences. And that's when I realized the whole geek community existed. But here's what was really interesting about it. You know, this geek community was relatively monolithic. And so once I started going to the Comic-Cons, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this has existed forever? Yeah, I mean, I just started, you know, going to Comic-Con maybe about five years ago actively. And the year I did, you know, I was, um, I helped to moderate a panel and I hosted a, an, an event afterwards. And, you know, I had friends who were total, total comic book geeks. And I'm telling them about them. These are African-American friends. And I'm like, hey, I have some extra tickets. Come, come out to this. And they come out to the Chicago Comic Con, and their mouths fell open because they were in love with this culture, engaged in this culture for their entire lives, and they had no idea that Comic Con was something that really existed. Um, and then, you know, forget the science fiction conventions. You know, when I start mentioning those, they're like, seriously? They exist? Like, I've always been into this. How come I knew nothing about it? And it was almost to the point where it was a little overwhelming because this is all 
you know, a lot of my friends and associates, this is all they talked about was science fiction. So for them to have no idea that some of these publications existed, they knew nothing about the Hugo Awards, they knew nothing about, you know, um, uh, all of these cons and, and so forth. And, but here's what changed. When I had my booth and I'm, I'm talking about all of these things on social media, I started to see people that I knew, some of whom were proud of their geek flag, some of whom maybe not so much, start to come to it because it was kind of a portal or a gateway for them to come where they could say, oh, gee, it's okay. So what I've witnessed more than anything else um, in, in my personal experience, probably because I'm coming into these spaces as an author, I haven't really experienced resistance, right? But what I do see is the relative shock and awe when I talk to audiences of people of color and they find out, no, there's, there's places where you as an artist can simply just sell your drawings. You don't have to have a completed comic book. Or there's places where you can showcase your work and uh, they don't have to be purely um, spaces that aren't, say, devoted to this kind of work. There are places specifically for you if you like comic books and science fiction. And that seemed to be the bigger shock. There's something kind of interesting I've noticed where oftentimes if there's nobody, so if you're in a community where I'm, I work in tech during the day, um, and tech is very heavily white male dominated, right? Um, or you might have a smattering of Asians, um, uh, East Asians and Indians in tech, and that's not too unusual, but it, it's pretty white dominated in the US uh, with males. I've noticed the, I started a new job about eight months ago, and I and another woman were hired in at about the same time. There were no other women in the, the, the group. We kind of joke actually right now, the, the guys occasionally call me Robin and her Dawn, even though she's white, we look nothing remotely alike. We just got hired in at the same time and we're the only girls in the department. They're great, we think it's actually kind of funny. Um, but what I've noticed is that now that we have two women, We've started hiring more women, not even necessarily as a push to hire more women to become more diverse in any sort of way. It's just a mentality of we want to be a culture that is more open. And so now that you see that there are, you know, we are interviewing, Robin and I, uh, people who are coming into our team, we've hired another woman already. Uh, we're probably going to be hiring another woman in really short order. But people feel more comfortable when they see people who are like them in a space. I was interviewing a girl this week who said she was the only female in a group of 30 software developers. And she really, really wanted to come work for us because we had two other women on the team. And so she wouldn't be alone and wouldn't be outnumbered in that way. Um, Mitri and I were talking in the car about this mentality sometimes that uh, you can fall into as a minority or as uh, a woman being in a group that's very much not like you, which is much more dominant culture of the, uh, there can only be one. Um, and can we talk about some ways to break out of there can only be one? <laughs> because that's definitely a thing that kills us, right, in terms of encouraging more people to join our communities. Well, it's, it's like there's, there's the false narrative that we have to, that there's, there's only so much pie to go around. I mean, really, the pie is infinite. The cake is a lie. <laughs> But it's there. It just because you are bringing, you know, more more women, more minorities into your space, and you're already a minority in some way, it doesn't mean that it's taking away space and opportunities for you. I think we're we're kind of 
given that sort, we're kind of given those messages when we look at culture, particularly if we go into a space where we don't see a lot of other people who are like us when we're a minority, where you don't, you know, you don't see a lot of other people who are, you know, if, if you are trans and you're walking into a space and it's mostly cis people, or if I'm walking into a space and I see it's mostly white people, I'm like, what kind of space am I going to be walking into? How many barriers and you know, pieces of armor am I going to have to wear? And when somebody else comes in, I'm what I like to call a recovering chill girl. I used to be <laughs> that woman who would look around and automatically see another woman who was coming into my space, particularly if I perceived her to be more attractive or smarter or just generally more likable than me in some way, it was automatically going to be competition. I never looked at the other men in my space as competition, even though we're actually, you know, we, they probably were in some way. We're all competing to get to the, you know, those same, those same raises, those same promotions, but I wouldn't look at them as my competition. I'd look at the other woman as the competition. And that is actually, it's a false narrative. We shouldn't be viewing each other as competition. We should actually be building connections and strengthening each other and building each other up. I think particularly as women, we are taught that other women are the enemy. We are, we get this cultural narrative at large that says if another woman comes into my space, she is vying for male attention and she is, you know, somehow a threat to me in some way. And, and I call this recovering queen bee syndrome. <laughs> You're the recovering chill girl and the recovering queen bee. And I think a major part of it is A, representation matters. So when we see these posters for this event and they've got a female figure on them, that immediately makes me feel a lot more comfortable about the kind of environment I'm gonna walk into. And B, we need to start learning to see other women as our allies and as our friends and not approaching them as, you know, warily and in this frightened competitive manner. We, we need to do a little self-reflection and step back and say, oh, here's Dawn and she's very interesting and does all this stuff that's not threatening, that's really cool, and I wanna be around her more. Can we talk about mentorship a little bit? Yes. And I mean, this yes. applies across <laughs> yes. the board, right? If you are in a job and there's somebody new coming in, uh, it doesn't matter if they're male or female, if they're cis, if they're not. Um, let's just talk about mentorship in communities in general and how we can foster that, and as a person who is maybe somebody who has a little bit more authority, who has been around longer, how do we encourage new people to come in? Well, I always bring in interns to work with me. I'm always training social media interns, always looking for new illustrators um, for a lot of the projects, always looking for, say, like PAs or, or someone to work on uh, my projects because, you know, people did the same for me. And to me, it was always about creating some sort of opportunity where at least people get the experience and they can take that, do something with it, and pass it on. So, um, I, it's something that I have kind of built into a lot of the work that I do because I just feel it's so important. Um, that whole gateway to access um, thing is just uh, just something I really prioritize. So it's always something I'm, I'm constantly seeking. Well, I think to go back to one of the earlier points you were making too about how there was, you know, you would talk to other other people of color and they didn't know that there was a convention or they didn't know that they could just go, they had these spaces to sell their art, to make connections with other creators. I think that kind of ties back into why it's important to 
be a mentor, to go out and share your, share your knowledge with other people. Because one of the problems that I've seen now that I'm much more active in the convention circuit, particularly science fiction and fantasy, is that there's a lot of, and I think it's completely unintentional, but there's an entrenched uh, culture of kind of hoarding knowledge and sort of assuming that, well, if you're into this thing, clearly you're going to know where to go. You're going to know, if you're into science fiction, of course you're going to know that there's a convention in your town. If you're into comic books, of course you're going to know that there's a Comic-Con and that anybody can go and apply to have a booth or send in their panel ideas. Um, I had no idea that when I started doing panels at conventions that fans, you don't have to be a name in order to submit a panel to a convention. I was always under the impression that you had to be a published author, that you had to be somebody who was making some kind of production in order to do these things. Because nobody ever told me, and these communities that I would go into, people didn't really share information either because maybe they wanted to hoard it to themselves or they just naturally assumed that if you're here, you're going to know what the ropes are. You're going to know what the culture is. So when you are a mentor, one of the best things that you can do is welcome new people in and show them how to get around your, your community, introduce them to, you know, share your knowledge about, hey, you want to do this thing. You're really into it. If I can't help you, I know this other person who can because it's really important to keep the community going. If you're not sharing knowledge, if you're not sharing skills and you're not bringing new people in, eventually you are going to retire and there is not going to be anybody there to fill the space that you're leaving. This is a problem with conventions, this is a problem with community organizations that don't really think, I think, in the long term. They're only thinking about getting to the next day, everybody assumes that you're still going to be there in the same group, and that, oh, when you're ready to go, somebody else will just step in. That's not how it works. Well, and it also builds community in general, right? Belly dance, actually, um, especially perhaps tribal belly dance, is a very, very sort of small, relatively insular community uh, that's very active, but people outside of the belly dance world don't really know that it exists. Um, there, there tends to not be a lot of outreach. One of the things we've tried to do with Rock's Geek and is a thing that all of us who are performing with Rock's Geek really try to do is not just stay in the insular belly dance space. We perform at theaters that have nothing to do with belly dance. Um, we perform at conventions. We're trying to go other places and bring belly dance there because people don't have any idea what it looks like, right? You have this idea of, um, you know, maybe a girl in a sort of Hollywood-ish costume that's very sparkly, that may or may, like when I started belly dancing, I had no idea what to expect. I went to YouTube and I searched for belly dance and looked at what came back to me and got a sense of styles from that. Um, but you don't see a lot of belly dancers in public spaces. Uh, and I think a lot of the impression that people have, a lot of the impression that I had uh, before actually becoming one and studying myself was incorrect. So I think one of the things that we do too is whenever we are in a community that's fairly small um, and fairly insular, you go outside of that community. You have to be very deliberate about doing that. You bring what you do, you bring your art, you bring your love of you know, science fiction, you bring your interests to other people. You have to go out and find them. And I think the, that's something that's really important because it's very easy for us to stay in our own sort of tight-knit communities where we're comfortable and we're safe. 
I think actually yeah, like the point um, to jump off of that is that you know when we've done our panels about being Asian American geeks and about what that experience is like. After we did this one panel, after we did that panel at C2E2 this year, I had a, there were a group of Filipinos who came up to me, and I wanted to cry right there because they were saying how it meant so much to them to see someone who was like them speaking in a position of authority, saying that, hey, I am a leader in the nerd community, I have these projects that people are doing, because they didn't know, because I think what that point you're making about visibility is that if you are a mentor, if you are doing things, it's really important for you to be visible because you are showing that what the common perceptions of what a nerd and a geek is, which, let's be frank, the common perceptions are still that geeks tend to be cisgender white men who are probably straight. So when you are someone who is not one of those things and you are visible and you are being out there and being welcoming and saying, hey, I have these really cool things and I would love to share them with you. I'd love to be able to teach you what I do. I mean, I love teaching fire spinning to friends. I've taught Dawn how to do it and now she's totally sucked down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I wanna take a class. I will totally do that for both of you. <laughs> um, but it's really, that, it's really that important. I know for me, I had no idea that there was even a huge, just specifically Filipino science fiction and fantasy group writers in the Philippines. It's a huge thing over there and I didn't have any idea that that existed until I started meeting people. I started paying attention to people on Twitter and next thing I know I'm connected to this huge community and it's wildly inspiring to me and to be able to take that and pass that inspiration on to other people is one of the most rewarding things in the world. One of the things we forget too when we're in one of these communities is that we forget that other people don't know that you exist, right? Other people don't know that our tiny, very cool little group exists at all. And then we wonder why no one knew is coming. It's because they don't know we're there. I yeah. think Carly has a point about this. <laughs> well, and it's, it's sort of one of those situations where as an educator, I have this kind of built-in opportunity to let my students know that we do exist. For example, I teach an English literature class and I bring in a good third of our readings are comic books, are things like Mouse or we go back to Madman's Drum. And or right now we're looking at the Deep Dark Fears series off of Tumblr, which is wonderful. Um, and I've had students come to me afterwards actually in tears because they didn't know that there were careers out there for people who drew pictures and they've been pushed into, you know, take the business management degree because it's, you know, it's practical. And then they come and they switch their majors to art and they learn that they can actually make a living doing this and it's, it's amazing. And it's just showing them that first example, that first example of an artist being taken seriously, that first example of an artist winning a Pulitzer Prize for a comic book. And they go, whoa, and their whole world opens up. Yes. Well, and that was the reason I wrote the book Afrofuturism, because when I discovered the term, I immediately thought about a lot of friends of mine in college who were really into those concepts, but had no idea that there was a life, a world. They certainly didn't know there was theory or that they could teach it. And some of them weren't necessarily artists. So it's not like they were going to say, oh, let me go paint or, you know, I'll write poetry about it. Um, and, you know, for some who I was thinking about in particular, because they didn't quite know what to do with the interest, they sort of lost their way uh, or, or didn't 
they certainly didn't pursue it. So I wrote the book in part so that people who had interest in sci-fi who may have approached it through the standpoint of philosophy or music or literature, or the geeks or however they engaged with it, they could see a life, they could see that they were part of not just a community, but like a, a trajectory mm -hmm. of interest that spanned history and time. And, and I was surprised to see how that oriented so many people so quickly. So two years ago, when the book came out, if I said the word Afrofuturism, you know, a lot of people didn't know what I was talking about until I explained it. Then they're like, oh yeah. And here we are, 2015, you know, I can go in a room and say the word Afrofuturism and people say, oh, I've kind of heard of that before. Yeah, and maybe that's part of the, both the privilege and the pleasure of mentorship is helping people identify what they're actually passionate about and put a name to it and show them, here's a way that you might begin to pursue that and then just kind of wind them up and let them go. And that's, that's the payoff, that's the value in mentorship, I think. And I think in, in, in building audiences, just finding all kinds of ways for people to connect to something, you know, not just having a limited idea around who would be interested in a subject. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's um, one of the issues, I think, with, with the community building is, again, when we are visible, when we are visible members of communities and we're showing that this is a community that is for everybody, not just specific types of people like one of the reasons I will come to conventions now not always wearing a geeky t-shirt even though they're kind of eating up all of my drawer space at home is because it's important to me to start showing that you can still like if you're a woman you can still be a woman who likes to wear big shiny pieces of jewelry you can present as femme and that doesn't mean anything about how geeky you are or the things that you're into um, because I have had experiences where I've walked into communities and I will be with my husband who doesn't wear geeky stuff either. He's a very plain guy. He doesn't like to wear shirts with any sort of logos on them. But even when we walk into those spaces, it's automatically assumed that I'm there just because he is, not because I can pretty much make somebody cry because they'll lose at Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the things that you have learned um, as mentors and some of the mistakes that you've made in trying to encourage people into these various spaces, and maybe some of also so the successes in, in doing that. It's a very well-intentioned mistake, but one is I, it's one I try not to do so much anymore. When somebody tells me that they're not into a fandom or they're not into a particular author, instead, what I used to do would be like, oh, well, but you need to understand this and this and this, and if you knew more, if it's going off of the assumption that if they just understood this topic or this work better, then they would like it the way that I do. That is incredibly condescending, <laughs> and actually well-intentioned as though it may be, it will put somebody off. So I try now instead if they like, well, yeah, I like science fiction, but I'm not really into Firefly. I'm not going to expound on the reasons why, fire, why I love Firefly. I will be like, oh, okay, so what do you like? And there's always a way to try to tailor somebody, you know, to tailor what the information you're giving to somebody based on their interests. They don't have to match up with yours. You can still love science fiction and not like Joss Whedon. I swear it's okay. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Oh, did I just come out? Oh. 
but yeah, it's one of the like I it's as as a as someone who loves bringing people into community spaces. I need to remember that my enthusiasm for a thing does not automatically transfer to other people's enthusiasm and we don't have to like the same things in order to work together, in order to be able to celebrate community together. And that's sort of the educator's dilemma too. I've given my students, uh, for example, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, absolutely classic piece of sci-fi work that I love. and come into class on Monday morning and we're gonna talk about it and it's just like crickets. They have, they are not interested, they have no context for it. And initially, as a young teacher, my urge was to say, no, you're going to understand this and we are gonna analyze it until you love it because it's right. No, okay, maybe, maybe we just step back and we give them something else to read. It's a, it's a species of the same mistake. <laughs> I don't know. They don't like four Fahrenheit at 451. I don't know what to tell I you. I don't know. <laughs> this, this is why I drink. <laughs> I guess my challenge is always to see the point of connection. Yeah. So even in writing the Afrofuturism book, you know, there's a chapter on so many different aspects of how people approached it because I wanted it to be more of a portal for engagement. Uh, because there's people who are, you know, big jazz music buffs who can connect to the concept, but maybe they don't know as much about the, some of the African mythology. Or maybe you have people who are really uh, tied to it for the, the social historical significance of it, you know, and, but they're less aware of, say, the history and fiction or current fiction authors. So I tried to span a lot of different things so people can connect in different ways and realize, look, it's okay if you're not so into the fiction, but you really like the films and you really mm -hmm. like certain TV shows. Or it's okay if you like the social justice aspect or the, the, the concept of using your imagination to facilitate you know, transformation and change, and, you know, but you're not so into um, certain movies, you know? And it's like, it's okay for you to find your own little space in it and not feel as if you have to get into the, the, com the competition, essentially, um, which you see in a, lot of, um, in a lot of, you know, geek communities where it's, you know, who knows more about what? I mean, that doesn't have to <laughs> be your space. It's fun, but just, you know, pick your lane and it's okay. I think one thing that I've learned in various different contexts over the years is sometimes if you are, uh, not that you should ever hide your knowledge, I don't think that, that that's a good thing, so we'll just sort of start there, but sometimes there are ways of presenting the knowledge that you have so forcefully to people all of the time <laughs> that it's really, really intimidating. And then people feel like you can't actually, you know, be asked questions because then they, they just sort of feel stupid. And that's really a mistake that I used to make when I was a lot younger. And I try now to sort of, you know, step back a little bit, maybe not assume that people have the, the wide berth of knowledge in whatever the area is, and just try to make things more approachable. And, you know, from the very beginning, say I'm training somebody new in a, in a tech sort of environment, I might say, you know, from the very get-go, feel free to ask me any questions you have. Like, no question is stupid. And then when somebody asks you a question that you do think is a little strange, don't treat them as stupid. They probably <laughs> are, you know, they really do need to know. Not everyone's just gonna come in with the baseline of knowledge that you do. So there's a lot I think about learning to be approachable that I, I've learned over the years. Yeah, I think that baseline of knowledge part is 
we can't assume that everybody in our space has that same level of knowledge. Like I run into that problem when we start talking about interpreting fandom through in, an intersectional lens and um, talking about representation issues. Not everybody is up on the same lingo and the same concepts. So it's trying to check myself a little bit and be like, okay, I may feel really passionately about this thing, but let's find out where you are with understanding. Um, like when we talk about community, I think one of the biggest barriers that we have is acknowledging that our communities are problematic. I mean, we've had this big, the, the latest thing, because there's always a string of kerfuffles, um, was, is the comic, books, comic book industry being called out for harboring harassers and uh, having people in high levels of power who are known to be problematic around women. Um, that is a problem that it's now they're starting to starting to talk about it and it's not necessarily about the individuals involved it's about the toxic sort of culture that allows these things to happen and I think one of the hardest things that I have found being a community organizer is getting people to just acknowledge that those things are a problem in general like harassment at conventions um, whether or not you have a community where microaggressions against people of color are tolerated, being able to push the envelope on those discussions is extreme, can be extremely frustrating, but it's necessary to have. And if you are in a position where you have the ability to push those discussions, it is a benefit for your community to be healthier and to gr continue growing because you will lose people if you allow things to go unchecked, like somebody saying, you can have a difference of opinion about liking Wonder Woman versus Power Girl. You cannot have a difference of opinion about treating somebody as a, as a human just because of their race or their sexual orientation. Sometimes too, there's something even in these discussions about just including people. The, the performers of Rock's Geek are all pretty nerdy. Um. Really? <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, it, it didn't even, yeah. I've, we're huge nerds. Uh, one of the one of the people who performs with us is himself a huge nerd, but I mean sometimes he even gets lost in the discussions that we have. He has a degree in video game design, and he'll still get lost in our discussions and think maybe he's not worthy of you know claiming the nerd badge sometimes. Um, and I think there's a lot that we can do to kind of pull people in and say, well, I mean, just because we're talking about you know Star Trek, this entire conversation, if you don't know something about Star Trek, <laughs> let me bring you in. Let me <laughs> you know like introduce this to you, as opposed to just kind of leaving them out in the cold when you see somebody in your group has gotten a little quiet and you're not really you know concentrating on why because you're too busy having your cool nerd discussion. Uh, really try to like I think bring people along and people appreciate that effort. <laughs> And I think there's there's probably also something to just if you're going into certain communities and you're not familiar with people, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes depending on the circumstance, there can be a level of rejection. And sometimes there can be kind of a self-perpetuated rejection that people kind of carry with them um, where you feel, you know, if someone starts talking about something that you're not familiar with, just ask a question. Yeah, you know, and people who like talking about subjects will be more than happy to tell you everything you ever <laughs> wanted to know about, you know, episode X and Y or just the whole culture of something. Um, and I think it's okay to feel, um, you know, it's you know, it's okay to feel a little bit vulnerable in the sense of, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. Can you tell me? Can you show me? 
can you give me some examples? And you'll probably be inundated with information, but <laughs> feel okay to ask if that's an okay thing. That's an awesome segue, too. We would love to take questions from you guys. Uh, is there anything you would like to ask the panel? Oh, that's oh, a really good question. I, I personally don't. I, I really don't bother trying to make the make make the difference because they're so interchangeable. To me, um, I like. I think I use geek out uh, geek as a verb more than I use nerd. Out like I say, I will geek out over food. I will geek out over. <laughs> yes, I will geek out over food. If anybody wants to talk gastro, you know, like you know, the whole like gastropub stuff, I will totally do that. Um, but when I pr when I describe myself, nerd and geek are very interchangeable. Yeah, I, I don't know. I tell my students I'm a professional nerd because I get paid to talk to people about books. That's what my job boils down to. But I, I always, as a kid, I perceived a geek as being more tech technically minded, like someone who was more focused on computers, and then nerds were more like comic book nerds. But now I think the terms have really come together. Like. I think practically speaking, I use the terms completely interchangeably. Yeah. Yeah. But if I start, you know, talking technical definitions, uh, geek oh to God, me. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, geek to me does have a more technical, um, like science fiction, um, you know, actual maybe like science or or computer sort of definition. Whereas nerd seems to have a broader sort of definition where it can go into something like you can be a nerd about books or you can be a library nerd. Um, you sort of tend to picture people with glasses. Uh, but I mean, practically speaking, I totally use the terms interchangeably, and I'm not specific until we have the what is a nerd versus a geek versus a dork argument. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would probably just say geek. I agree with it being used more as a verb. And I think it's probably more of like a culture kind of yeah. thing, too. Yeah. Mm. Whereas yeah. nerd kind of implies, you know, kind of a solo activity, mm -hmm. I think. I think That's nerd yeah. often used to imply also more knowledge, more, more actual knowledge about a particular subject. Right, and geeks like the enthusiasm around the subject right. to some degree. I like the idea of like teasing out geek being more, having more of like sociable connotations, where, whereas nerd sort of feels like a little bit more individual, someone like a little less community oriented, I think. It's not that I think that, you know, that it's totally right, but I think the way that we perceive both of those words, that's really interesting, because I've heard geek referred to more as communities and cultures, rather than the word nerd. Yeah, and people will associate geek with other things, like you said, yeah. food, or you're a book geek, or something like that, a basketball geek, you know, but you, would you say someone's a basketball nerd? Yeah, even though, you know, just to be fair, mm -hmm. sports and geek, or sports and nerdery, sports and geekery, totally not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when, you, when you wear a Bears jersey during the game, that's cosplay. <laughs> that's all that is. <laughs> also, for anyone who plays fantasy football, you're basically playing D&D. Oh, I would <laughs> like to point out that Sh Chicago Nerd Social Club has not only a fantasy football league, it does, there are people who do fantasy hockey in the group. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, nobody loves stats like nerds. Oh right. Mm. Any other questions? You know you have questions, come on. Come on, yes. Go ahead.
Yes. I was totally. never yes. personally insulted by that. I, I personally took it as a badge of pride. But definitely other people around me did not think it was cool <laughs> or okay in any way, shape, or form. Um, I was okay being an oddball, but I was definitely ostracized as kind of the weird girl growing up. It took until college um, for me to, I went to school at the University of Michigan. There are a ton of nerds there. Uh, and a lot of people at U of M were the kind of weird nerd kid at their respective high schools and middle schools and such. So we, it's going to college for me felt like finding a lot of my people in one place because we'd all had sort of similar backgrounds. Yeah, I was totally teased for being a nerd coming up. I wanted to be a scientist. I had the glasses. Um, nerd was not a cool word, we know, like it kind of is now to some degree. Uh, so yeah, I was really teased about a lot of those things. Uh, my my saving grace, though, was probably a couple things. One, understanding the value of education, how important it was, but uh, I was really into dance. So that was a good balance for me. And it facilitated, uh, you know, another way of being really confident. Now, you know, of course, you mature, the glasses come off, and you know, other things sort of happen, and and you know, these things you you merge identities. But I think out of that, I, I became a, a stronger person because it was really just about following your own path, and I felt really comfortable doing that and not feeling, and feeling like it was. Um, I didn't have to always be validated, let's put it that way, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, by what was supposed to mainstream culture, although that was something I was really navigating through. Yeah, I was, a, I was an art nerd, and <laughs> I have many fond memories of uh, back in the dark ages in the early 1990s when I was in middle <laughs> school, uh, hiding, holding my sketchbook like this and hiding it because I had just discovered anime and grunge music at the same time. Ooh. And having other kids going, let me see your drawings, weirdo, let me see your drawings. And like feeling like I had to keep them in the closet. And it wasn't until coming to college at the School of the Art Institute where I met my tribe who were other art nerds and realized these people are the nerdiest, geekiest people in the world and they're so cool. And now <laughs> I get to be one of them and it's totally awesome and totally okay. I actually had this weird circular um, thing where for most of my life from kindergarten through eighth grade, and hi, Mrs. Lenhart, I can see you back there. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I went to a school where my friends will continually tell me when I describe what it was like, I went to Hogwarts for real people. <laughs> I went to a school full of nerds and actually I got teased for not being nerdy enough uh, which was kind of odd because, you know, we'd have the person who was doing their science fair project on building a miniature wind tunnel. Someone else was doing their science fair project on nuclear fusion. I'm sitting there growing mold on bread. <laughs> um, so, but it was, it, it gave me, it, it, like being a nerd was such a normal part of my experience that when I got to high school, suddenly it was something that I was like too nerdy. Um, but in a weird way, because depending on who I was hanging around with, when I would hang around with other with other girls, 
oh my God, you're too nerdy. What are you doing reading those comic books? You know, why aren't, you know, like you have no idea how to use makeup. And thankfully this was the 90s, so grunge meant I didn't have to worry about makeup. <laughs> um, but then I would hang around other guys and it would be, I constantly had to prove how nerdy I was in both implicit and explicit ways. Um, I went to those tiny little hotel conventions doing the rat finger dance through all of those little, you know, like 50, you know, 50 cent comic book bins, getting all these back issues of the X-Men so I knew what, I knew who Strife was, I knew what the Executioner song was, I knew Genosha, I was reading all the way back to this stuff because I would get the quiz. And being a, like Dawn, one of the reasons we bonded when we first got to know each other was I ended up using Nerd as a suit of armor for my identity. I'm like, fine. I'm, you know, you're gonna call me a geek or a nerd, you're gonna call me a geek girl, I'm going to be the nerdiest, geekiest person you can possibly meet, and don't even try playing Trivial Pursuit. It's, <laughs> it was a way to get through a lot of those really awful years when you felt, when, like when I felt being on the outs because I was a geek, but it developed a lot of very bad habits that it took me through college into my early 20s to sort of really start digging them out because while they were a survival mechanism, when I actually started finding other people who were not going to give me crap for being a girl who was into nerdy stuff, by the way, being an Asian person who does not read a lot of manga or watch anime, um, it made it a lot, I had to work hard to not be as defensive, to not look at other people as competition, and to just really embrace loving the stuff, and if people were going to give me crap for it, well, then they weren't going to be worth my time. That was definitely something where, one of the reasons I think I latched onto, even though nerd and geek, that was not a cool thing when I was growing up, I think one of the reasons I latched onto that was I was one of the only Asians in a school of a thousand. It was me, there was my brother, there was one other family, it was this other guy and his brother. So I was already an outsider to begin with. I moved countries uh, in the middle of first grade. And so you know, I came into a community where most people's parents actually had grown up in the area, and most of them were born in that area, and there wasn't a lot of moving around. So I was weird to begin with. So I was gonna grab anything that you know, made me a little bit strange, and you know, that was just part of my identity to begin with, because I couldn't get away from being the weird kid, no matter what I did. <laughs> You're still weird, but we love you anyway. Right. <laughs> we love you because you're weird. One of us. I think the big hurdle was just really overcoming any kind of social awkwardness. Yeah. You know, so it's okay to, you know, geek out about certain subjects and be really happy about them. It's okay to be super smart. Um, but the, it's the, the opportunity to be able to connect with people and to connect with all kinds of people, you know, from a wide array of backgrounds and to find ways to connect. I think that's the challenge sometimes yeah. when you, you see yourself as a geek or when people call you that, um, that, you know, how can I connect with people? Uh, and, you know, in, in some cases it was the opportunity to do that that helped people push past that awkwardness. So, you know, I always encourage people to really kind of push past kind of that, the, yeah, that awkward stage or phase that's sometimes associated with this, our experiences. And to kind of loop back around to the idea of if your whole identity has been built on being the nerdiest person and being the most knowledgeable person, 
because you've had to be, because you had to sort of defend yourself you know, against if you were the only girl in a group of guys and you were always challenged by these sorts of things, to take a step back and now to, when you're in a position of being the one who is clearly more knowledgeable in the group, of not being intimidating with that and welcoming people in and kind of sharing what you have as opposed to feeling like you have to prove everything all the time. Um, that was kind of a difficult switch for me to make. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I really loved about Chicago Nerd Social Club, and that is has been where I lucked out and I really found a lot of my, my, pe my nerdy peoples, like the people who I love to work with who I have been able to either, if I you know, make some sort of professional connection, get you know, introducing them to each other, it's, I love being able to create networks among other people. It is one of the most rewarding things that I can do. Um, one of the reasons I actually got involved in Chicago Nerd Social Club was because I saw how the people in charge at that time were moderating their online community. Like, Twitter and Facebook for me has been an absolute gift in being able to find other nerds and geeks to work with, to become friends with. Social media has been absolutely fantastic for that. But you know how things can go online if there's not a lot of oversight or if certain things are allowed to slide. When I saw how the moderators for Chicago Nerd Social Club were, would step in, they would curate discussions so that they were, you know, you could have disagreement, but there would be, you know, abusive language was not allowed, um, microaggressions were called out for what they were. Uh, it signaled that this was a group of people that I would love to be involved in. And one of the proudest things that I am of having been part of that club is that once I joined, they had already been having discussions about we should have some kind of anti-harassment policy for our events, for our community. Um, we were able to get that up and running. So now whenever we have an event, whenever we have people, we invite people into our community, we have a code of conduct that we expect people to abide by when they are posting and interacting both in online spaces and in physical spaces when we have meetups. Um, it sends a message about who we consider to be welcome and what kind of behaviors that we expect from people. And I think it makes a huge difference that the three visible moderators that we now have in our group are all women, two of whom are women of color and two of whom do not identify as, do not identify as heterosexual. So it, it sends a message when you have people in those very influential positions who are visible again saying, hey, this is who we have here, this is who you can expect to see running into and who will be, who will be listening to any concerns that you have. When you have a diverse makeup of your community, then you get better perspectives. You get, you know, you might have somebody catching something that you are missing because you're coming from a different point of view. It makes it better so that more of your community's concerns can be represented. So we've totally went a whole long yeah. route answering your question. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take another question. Anybody? Anybody? Come on. I had seen yeah, hands go up. So I, I wanted to make sure that we got to people. Finding your, like again, finding your peoples is very important. Find the people who 
have a, who have a similar work ethic, who are dependable because as much as you love your friends, not all of your friends are going to be able to or willing to do the work of actually building a viable, sustainable community. Um, find people who have experience and knowledge bases that are different from yours. If you know you're really good at event management, but you don't really have any skills with web design, with WordPress, uh, you're not comfortable with online media and moderating a group, um, find people who will be able to complement your skills by being able to contribute that. Um, experience levels of different kinds, you know, you can find, finding people to talk to who are willing to share their knowledge of having built something similar is really a really, really good idea. Um, I've seen con runners who have been really great about talking to other people who want to start up similar events saying here's here's where we started have a code of conduct if you're putting together a actual board of trustees do your research online and see you know what uh, how those things are structured um, those are really good places to start yeah, and specific to starting groups at colleges and universities I think the first thing a student should do assuming this is a student who wants to do this is go find a teacher who you connect well with, who's interested in similar things, and tell them what your ambitions are. Because chances are they know other students that you don't know. And a big part of what we do as teachers and administrators is just take these puzzle pieces and put them together. And we can generally connect you with the right people, or at least people who know the right people. And boom, you've got a group. Now you just got to figure out what to do with it. You've got to figure out how to advertise yourselves. You've got to come up with a mission statement. And that's where you need to start reaching out to, say, art classes. And if there's an arts club on campus, they can help you with the promotion. Maybe there's a broadcasting group on campus, and they can help you with that sort of thing. Just start. I know I'm going to get stoned in the street by my fellow administrators for suggesting this. But just start bothering the staff and the teachers on <laughs> campus incessantly until you get what you're after. That persistence and that curiosity is what's going to pay off for you, not just in college, but in the rest of your life. So start practicing it now. I think there are a couple of things that I've learned. And I, I start a lot of projects and groups and that sort of thing. Um, one thing I've learned is ownership uh, of the group by more than one person is really, really important. Oh God, you yes. physically cannot do it all, even if you have all mm -hmm. of the skills that you think that you would need. Uh, when I started Rocks Geek, it was very much in terms of the administrative, kind of running things end of it, uh, managing the group. That was really just me. Uh, <laughs> in the last like few months, uh, we've tried to diversify that out a little bit so that, I mean, I only have so much time. You only have so much time. Even if you are the most energetic person in the world and the most knowledgeable person in the world, you cannot do it by yourself. Please like, find other people who are willing to take <laughs> various parts of things. Learn to <laughs> Believe delegate. me, this is a lesson I have had to learn. Um, so, so spread the work out and give people ownership of the group because you know, in the end, if you're the only person doing it, you really are the only person who has ownership of it too. Other people don't have as much buy-in. So if you can spread some of the various responsibilities out, they also will have more buy-in. And guess what? Your group is going to be more successful. That's great. Um, 
One other thing that I've learned is partnering with other groups doing similar mm -hmm. things or other people doing similar things is really, really, really important. Um, we don't have to fight each other for the same space. So even if there's a group that's at about the same sort of level as you in terms of how successful they've been or maybe they're newer or something, we don't have to fight for, for the same, uh, there's sometimes with art there's a concern that you're fighting for the same audience. Uh, there's a group called Acrobatica Infinity which is the, ner the nerd circus. They're awesome. Uh, they just started really recently in February or so. They launched with a, a big Kickstarter. And from the beginning, uh, I and the director of uh, Acrobatica have been working together because we figure, you know, Rocks Geek has some strengths, Acrobatica has some strengths. Also combined forces, we just have more people, which is really helpful when you're needing to do things like promote. Um, or if you want to put a show together, now you can do things that are a little bit more diverse. So it started with, okay, we're going to try really hard to bring both of our groups into doing you know, partnerships together, uh, which has led to me sort of becoming part of their group, and now I, I dance with them quite a lot. And that's a lot of fun. You'll get to know really great people that way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also just beneficial for both of your groups. Like, if I have knowledge in uh, how to write you know, publicity, um, to do press releases, or if I've got knowledge in a particular area, I can share that with them because we don't, again, all have to fight for the same space. Uh, one of the things that some of the various nerd performance groups, there's a lot of nerd theater companies um, and sort of geek-related uh, performers that are in the Chicago area, and some of us are actually trying to share resources. Again, we're like, you know, we don't have a lot of budget, right? We don't have a lot of people. But one thing that we can do is all work together, and then everybody gets to do cooler and better things. And that's great. Yeah, I would just encourage people to think about why are you creating this event? Why are you writing this book? Why are you, you developing this project? Um, and in doing so, I think it'll help lend itself to having more ideas around how to connect with audiences, how to, what groups you can partner with when you really explore the why. You know, if the why is, well, you know, just because it makes me happy, um, is that a group endeavor, you know? Yeah. <laughs> mm. You know, it's, it's some, you, I think it's something to sort of think about. Um, especially if it's, a, if you're looking to do something where you want to engage people, is this just a platform for you? Or is there a larger mission, you know? And is that larger mission that you want to rally people around a certain subject that you're excited about and you just want to share that information. And if so, then it lends itself to forming connections and there'll be an organic way to attract people. But if it's about something else, then you, I think you know there, there just needs to be a, a relative honesty about that. Uh, and in looking at how you can express yourself and, and does that relate to the group or the project that you want to start? I think that's also, uh, you bring up a really good point, is that if you're going to do this, and this is a, a really hard lesson to learn when you're do organizing anything, a group or a film or an anthology, don't do it because you want cookies. Uh, you are, it's, it is not, you know, don't do it if you just want it to be about showing off how cool you are and you, are, and you want people to thank you and acknowledge all the things that you're doing, because as nice as that is, that is not always going to happen. Um, some of the best organizers who I've worked with are the ones who are so good at their job, you don't realize what they're doing. 
And if you are that person, it is it can be very hard to deal with your ego, but you have to know that that is going to be, it is probably going to be a thing when you are so good at your job, people are not going to realize all the fires you're putting out, all the late hours that you have put into making sure that your event didn't go off the rails, that you made your deadlines for your project. Um, and one, like nobody likes to talk money, budget. Understand what your budget is. Be realistic with what your resources are because you can always find ways to do things you can work together. Partnerships, there are grants you can apply for, but you have to be realistic about what you can afford, what you are willing to spend, what you can fundraise for, um, all of those things. Be, there is no such thing as being too detail-oriented. Um, one of the things that we learned when we kickstarted Uncanny Magazine, uh, we are now in year two, one of the things we learned about year one uh, is that taxes are a thing <laughs> that you that can be that can be a lot bigger than you would initially budgeted for. So it's always a good idea to if you are not good with numbers, if you don't have the patience for it, find somebody who can help you with that because that will be one of the biggest killers that you have to deal with. Okay, so we're gonna wrap this up. Um, we're gonna go down the line. Everybody can. Uh, throw in a plug for, for who they are and what they do again really quickly, <laughs> and we'll just start here. <laughs> sure, okay. well, you know, check out the, the website for um, Afrofuturism. It's actually iafrofuturism.com. Uh, check out the Rayla book. It's available as an audio book as well, and you can get it through Amazon or its stores. And check out our Indiegogo for the Bar Star City film, which uh, we also have a, a production trailer that we put on there, so you can see a little bit of what we're doing and share it with people and you can donate and but most importantly let people know that it's coming soon well i lost my website in the divorce so you can't look at my <laughs> artwork oh but come take one of my cards or get at me on twitter if you want to talk about art if you want to talk about painting about its future in the chicago area or you just want to nerd out a little bit uh, we are open for submissions at Uncanny Magazine, so if you are a science fiction and fantasy writer, uh, please send us your submissions. We have our guidelines up on the website, so please make sure you read those. Um, but we take submissions for poetry and short fiction. Um, Chicago Nerd Social Club, we, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, we have both a Facebook group, which is where most of the socializing takes place, and we also have a Facebook page, but that's more for just sharing informational events. Uh, in the group, we will have discussions where everyone's talking about any sort of geekery that they have. Um, you know, the closer it gets to Star Wars, the more we'll probably see lots of Star Wars in the group. Um, you can also follow my blog, uh, geekmelange.com. Um, unfortunately, I don't have as much time to write as I'd like because managing a science fiction and fantasy magazine, and we've got, what, show? C should we say something about the show for Rock's Geek? Yeah, I can jump over into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rock's Geek will be performing in Chicago at MCL Chicago in November, uh, two different Thursday nights at 7.30. It's November 12th and 19th. So you'll see some pretty awesome, Mitchie's gonna be doing some flow art, I'll be doing some belly dance, we'll have a belly dancing Wookiee, um, and a whole bunch of other different nerd <laughs> references. It's gonna be a really, really great show. 
Uh, I'm really excited about it. And then we're also going to be performing December 4th, which is a Friday night at 8 o'clock at the Uptown Underground. And that one will have fire. And that one will have fire. It'll be a slightly shorter show, but we'll have fire at that. So both shows yeah. are going to be really awesome. You can get tickets soon online. Um, but in the meantime, I do have some cards you can pick up with website info and all that good stuff. Um, I'm also a singer-songwriter. You can hop on my website and check out some music or jump onto iTunes and do a search, any of that good stuff. Um, thank you guys so much for having us and for coming and asking questions. Thank you to Tish for organizing all of this. It's yep. been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.